Welcome, everybody, to the first public event of the mathematics, LSE Mathematics Department in 2016. My name is Jan van den Heuvel. I'm one of the members of the, uh, the faculty in the Department of Mathematics. Before I introduce the speaker, just a little bit of uh, promotion for the department. Uh, for people who are following us on Twitter or following Twitter or like to live tweet these events, please use hashtag LSEMARTS. And if you want to follow us there with the at LSEMARTS, that will also be the place you can find information and links and announcements of other things we organize. And in particular, the talk of today will be recorded and will be fairly soon available as a podcast and as a video online. And again, that will be announced via Twitter but of course also on our website. So having said that, I think uh, let's just get down to real business. It's my honor and very great pleasure to introduce a long-standing, I think I might say friend, I mean definitely we know each other for quite a while, uh, Professor uh, Robin Wilson, uh, who is today's speaker. Robin is, uh, has a long and distinguished career, did a PhD in mathematics at uh, Pennsylvania, although he's British-born and kind of lived for most of his life in this country. He has been working, he's now an emeritus professor from the Open University. He's an emeritus professor uh, from Gresham College here in London. He's also a visiting professor of our department here at the LSE. And uh, he teaches for us on the history of mathematics with great enthusiasm and with good in attracting students. Uh, Mathematically, he started, well, I think it's scientifically, for, he started as a working in graph theory, discrete mathematics, which is also my area. But in more recently, most of his work, his research, his writing is about the history of mathematics. He's written about, when we're walking here, he told me he had written about 40 odd books on the topic, which is more than some of us publish in our articles. He has about eight books in production in some stage. And if he gets bored, he will start looking at at least five that are somewhere on the kind of on, on the drawing board to be published in some time. Most of these books will be about certain aspects of history of mathematics. So let's kind of uh, start listening to one of the kind of his expertise is the kind of the mathematics of non-Western civilization. So Robin, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jan, and uh, thank you, good evening, and thank you all for coming. Today I want to look at the questions, where did our mathematics come from, and how did it originate? Undoubtedly, the earliest methods of counting included, included forming stones into piles, cutting notches in sticks, and counting on the fingers, which led eventually, of course, to our familiar decimal number system. And in several places we find geometrical arrangements of stones, such as the circular patterns at Stonehenge. But for today, I'd like to talk about the mathematics of the five cultures that you can see here, starting with Egypt and Mesopotamia, and then proceeding via China and India to the Mayans of Central America. These periods are shown on this timeline, and I'll be covering the five cultures shown in blue. 
so I'll start with Egypt and Mesopotamia. Uh, Greece needs a whole lecture to itself, that's for another day, uh, while uh, Islamic mathematics and Europe came later. Uh, so the second half of the lecture will be on, on, on China and India and on the Mayans. But before we start, I'd like to remind you about place value number systems. We use a decimal system, of course, that uses only the numbers 1 to 9 together with 0. But the value of a number depends on its place or position. So in the number 3139, the first three represents 3000, whereas the second one represents 30. But once we have a place value system, we can then calculate... Um, bigger problem. Once we have a place value system, we can then calculate in columns units first, then tens, hundreds, thousands, and so on. But as we'll see today, not all of the cultures we'll meet today had decimal systems, and not all of them had a place value system. So we'll start our story today with Egypt and Mesopotamia, which are shown on this map. Ancient Egypt developed along the valley of the Nile, while Mesopotamia as its name suggests, developed between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And as we'll see, the primary sources, the surviving primary sources, are markedly different. We know rem relatively little about the Egyptian world because their writings were on papyrus, which rarely survives the ravages of the centuries. Only a handful of mathematical papyruses still exist, such as the Rhind papyrus, in the British Museum, named after its Victorian buyer, Henry Rind. It was written by a scribe such as the one shown above. On the other hand, Mesopotamian mathematics was imprinted on clay tablets that were baked in the sun, and many thousands of these have survived. Incidentally, what I call Mesopotamian mathematics is often referred to as Babylonian mathematics, even though it wasn't centred uh, in Babylon. Uh, that term, incidentally, is now going out of use. When studying the mathematics of ancient Egypt, we're immediately struck with how little the subject changed over a period of 3,000 years. Egyptian society was centred on the River Nile, which irrigated the land so that crops could grow and cities could develop. The civilization was a hierarchical one headed by the mighty kings and pharaohs. From about 2700 BC, the pharaohs desired to be buried in massive pyramids, and the oldest of these, King Joseph's step pyramid at Saqqara, which you can see above, was built in horizontal layers and was supposedly designed by Imhotep, the, grand, the celebrated grand vizier and architect. But better known are the magnificent pyramids of, of Giza, which date from about 2600 BC and attest to the Egyptians' extremely accurate measuring skills. In particular, the Great Pyramid of Cheops in the middle has a square base whose sides of length 20, 230 metres agree to within one hundredth of one percent. Constructed from over 2 million blocks, averaging about 2 tonnes in weight, and transported 50 miles by a whole army of workers, 
The pyramid is an impressive 146 metres high. Even more remarkable, it's not solid but contains an intricate arrangement of carefully planned internal chambers and passageways. But how did the Egyptians count? And I'm moving forward now to about 1850 BC. Like most counting systems, theirs was based on 10, but it used different symbols for 1, 10, 100, 1,000, and so on. A bit like Roman numerals, which had different symbols for these numbers, and they also, of course, had different symbols for 5 and 50 and so on. So what are the symbols here? There's a vertical rod for 1, a heel bone for 10, a coiled rope for 100, a lotus flower for 1,000, and so on. As I said, recall that the Romans similarly used different symbols for 1, 10, 100, and 1,000. A number is then represented with the appropriate number of each symbol written from right to left. So here's the way they wrote 2,000, 658. However, their fractions were very different from those that we use. Apart from two-thirds, which was a frequent uh, fraction, all their fractions were unit fractions or reciprocals, 1 over n, for example, 1 over 5 and 1 over 66 and so on. So, for example, where we would write 2 over 13, they would write something like, in fact, they actually used this one, 1 over 8, 1 over 52, 1 over 104, and if you actually add those together, you'll find you do get 2 over 13. How do they add? That's quite easy if you're adding whole numbers. Here are 367. You can see 367 and 756. 756. And to add them together, uh, you just collect the symbols together. So you collect the ones together. There are First of all, 7, and then there are 6, so that gives you 13. So that gives you 3 vertical rods and a heel bone. So now you look at the heel bones, which are 10, and you've got 6 here, plus the 5 there, plus the one you've, you, you've carried over, and that's going to give you 12. That's going to give you uh, two of those, and uh, then a coiled rope. And you carry on in this way, and uh, so you just add, start, uh, and you collect things together, move them over, and the adding is perfectly straightforward. Multiplication is more interesting. <laughs> and it was done mainly by successive doubling and halving. Uh, they seem to be able to double and halve anything, and also, of course, multiplication by ten is simple, because you just take each symbol and replace it by the next one. So here's how they multiplied 80 by 14. You first of all write 80 with a 1 next to it, and you can see the uh, hieratic script there and our numbers on, on the right. And then you replace each heel bone by a coiled rope to get 800. That's the second row. Next, return to the 80 and double it. First to get 160, and then 320. And you notice that we've been keeping tabs on these things. If you look at the right-hand side... Um, you notice that I have marked the 10 and the 4 with a, a slash, okay? Because they add together to 14. So if you want to multiply 80 by 14, it's 80 times 10 
plus 80 times 4. So you just add those together, and that gives you the result that you can see down here, which is 1120. Now, the Rhine papyrus actually had on it, it had tables of numbers of fractions. It had uh, expressions in unit fractions for 2 over 5, 2 over 7, all the way up to 2 over 101. But most of the Rhine papyrus and the other main papyrus, which is the Moscow papyrus, um, is, uh, consists of a number of problems. There are about 80 or 84 problems on the Rhine papyrus. So here's number 25. The quantity and its half together become 16. What is the quantity? How would we do it? Well, in modern algebraic terminology, which of course they didn't have, we'd be solving the equation x plus a half x equals 16. 3 halves x equals 16, that would give us the answer x equals 10 and 2 thirds. But of course they did not have the algebra and the algebraic notation uh, uh, for doing such problems. So the method that they frequently used was the method of false position. Here they guessed a convenient solution and then scaled it up or down. Now you've got to add a quantity in its half, so a good guess to take would be two. Uh, because if you take that and it's half, you get three. They then scaled the three up to get 16 and said that if you now apply the same scaling to two, then you get the answer. And so that's what they do. Don't worry about all the, all the details. So that's scaling. As many times as 3 must be multiplied to give 16, so many times 2 must be multiplied to give the required number. So they start off with 1 and 3, 2 and 6. They keep on doubling. Uh, and then uh, how far do you double? Well, you've got 3, 6, 12. You don't want to go any further than that because that takes you beyond 16. So you've got 12. That's good. Uh, then you go back to, you say 1 is 3, so 2 thirds is 2, and 1 third is 1. And now if you look at the 3 and the 12 and the 1, that's 16, that's what you want. And now you look at the corresponding things on the left, with the slash marks against them, they give you 5 over a third, which corresponds to 1, and so what corresponds to 2 is 10 and 2 thirds, and that's your answer. So that's how they did that. And you know, once you've seen a few of these, uh, then uh, it's, it's not that difficult. And they, incidentally, then checked, checked the answer. But their ability to calculate with these unit fractions is, was incredible. Because look at this one. This is problem 31. A quantity, it's two-thirds, it's half, and it's seventh, added together become 33. What is the quantity? So we would solve x plus 2x over 3 plus x over 2 plus x over 7 equals 33, and if we do it right, we get 14 and 28 over 97. Well, they went through all this, and what's their answer? Look at that incredible, instead of 28 over 97, they got that incredible row of unit fractions. They, know they really did know how to, how to operate with these, and then they followed it with the nice line, which multiplied by 1, 2 thirds, or half of 7 makes 33, clearly. <coughs> So how did they do it? They used extensive tables of numbers, breaking fractions down into a succession of fractions of the form 2 over n, 2 over something, uh, and which of course has appeared on the Rhine papyrus, uh, and then they combined these repeatedly until they got the answer. A rather different sort of problem involves the area of a circle. 
Problem 50 asked the scribe to find the area of a circle of diameter 9. Now, they didn't say pi r squared or anything like that. Um, what they did was they had a rule of thumb which enabled us to find approximately the area of a circle. And what they did, uh, the rule was they used to reduce the diameter by a ninth, which is why this problem, which is a teaching problem, had a nine in it, and then square the result. So you, you take away a ninth of the diameter. This is the, this is the description in, on the papyrus. Take away a ninth of the, of the diameter, namely one, and the remainder is eight. Multiply eight by eight, it makes 64. Therefore, it contains 64 CTAT. That's an area of, uh, a measurement of area, uh, which is CTAT of land. So the answer is 64. So in our modern algebraic notation, the area is got by squaring eight-ninths of the diameter. And in terms of the radius, this is 256 over 81 R squared. 256 over 81, that corresponds to a value of pi of about 3.16 which was an excellent approximation for almost 4,000 years ago. Our last Egyptian problem from the Rhine papyrus is problem 79. It involves adding powers of 7. The papyrus lists houses 7, cats 49, rice 343, wheat 2,401, hecat 16,807. It then proceeds to add them all up for no apparent reason whatsoever <laughs> to give 19,607. So what it's doing is it's, uh, it's teaching the scribe how to add powers of seven. Now we've seen this before, have we? Does it seem uh, familiar? Yes, as I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Each wife had seven cats, etc., etc. And it's and it, it ends up how many were going to St. Ives. So again, most people in answering that would list the powers of seven and then add them all together, giving the answer. Of course, it's the wrong answer because the answer is one because I was the only one that was going to St. Ives, but there we are. <coughs> but it's amazing how problem, this problem appeared later on in, in, in the problems of Fibonacci. Fibonacci had a book of problems, and again in our nursery rhyme. Um, so uh, it, this example dramatically illustrates how the same mathematical idea can resurface in different guises over thousands of years. Let's now turn our attention to Mesopotamian mathematics. <clears throat> Although dating from the same time as the Rhine papyrus, their sources, clay tablets, were very different. Using a wedge-shaped stylus, they imprinted their symbols in the moist clay, as you can see. This is called cuneiform writing, and the tablet was then left dry in the sun. And as I said, we have thousands of mathematical tablets that have survived. Unlike the Egyptian counting system, however, which was a decimal system with different symbols representing the powers of ten, the Mesopotamian system was a place value system. But it was based on 60, and it used only two symbols, remnants of which uh, survive in our measurement of time. 60, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour, and also angles where you have 60 degrees, 360 degrees, and so on. However, there were ambiguities because the same succession of symbols, such as the one you can see on the right, might refer to 41 sixties plus 40, or it might be 41 and then 40 sixtieths 
or many other different things, uh, depending on the context. Now, that may, may seem unsatisfactory to us, but this idea of context is quite natural for us. 650, that might represent time, meaning 10 to 7. Or the cost of a bus trip, £6.50. Or the cost of an airline flight, £650. 650 pounds. And from the context, you know what someone's talking about. There are essentially three types of mathematical tablet. The first two were table texts, which listed tables of numbers that are used in calculations, and problem texts, which we'll see in a minute, in which problems are posed and solved. There is a third type, uh, basically used for schoolwork, uh, because if you, were, uh, if you were teaching a whole lot of kids, for example, and you had your clay tablets and they'd do a calculation with their, with their cuneiform writing, if they got it wrong, they could always just uh, rub their finger through it and, and, then, uh, and then have another go. And quite a lot of these have survived. So we actually know quite, uh, quite a bit about the way they taught uh, through these school uh, tablets that have survived. Let's go back to the table text. Several of them represent multiplication tables. And here's the nine times table. On the left, you have one, two, three, four, and so on, all the way down. Whereas on the right, you have nine, one, eight, that's 18, two, seven, three, six, four, five, five, four, and then 63. And remember, it's the same, same symbol for 60 as you had for one. So that's an example of a nine times multiplication table. These, tab these tablets, by the way, they're only this size. They're, they're hand, hand size. You can, you can hold them in their hand. They're not big things like the Rosetta Stone. Uh, they're, they're very, so they must have had exceedingly, exceedingly good eyesight. An example of a problem from a problem text is this one. I found a stone but did not weigh it. After I weighed out six times its weight, added two gin, which I hasten to add as a unit of weight, <laughs> and then added one-third of one-seventh multiplied by 24, I weighed it, giving one mana, another unit of weight. What was the weight of the stone? Well, this problem is clearly not a practical one, because if you simply wanted the weight of the stone, why not just weigh it in the first place? <laughs> it's actually one of 23 such problems, all on the same clay tablet, and all ending up with one mana, which leads us to believe that the tablet is a teaching tablet. And uh, the person using it would know that one mana equals 60 jinn. And then we can argue as follows using, and this is using our modern algebraic notation, but they wouldn't do this. Um, but the tablet actually does give the solution, the step-by-step -step solution. So, so with our algebraic notation... If x is the weight of the stone, then 6x plus 2, that's 6 times its weight plus 2 gin, plus a third times a seventh times 24 of it is 60 gin. Of it. Now, it doesn't mean of the weight of the stone. It means of the part of the calculation you've got to so far, which is 6x plus 2. So it's 6x plus 2 plus these, uh, this proportion, not of the stone, but of the 6, 6 plus 2, which we've reached so far, that's equal to 60. And if you solve it, you then get 4 and a third gin as the answer. Um, this had to be worked out from the context, because they, the, the tablet gives the answer. And it's only by working back from the answer that you can actually find out the details of the method. <coughs> 
Now, this is an example of what we, we now call a linear equation. Uh, the Mesopotamians were also skilled at solving what we now call quadratic equations 4,000 years ago. And the amazing thing is their method, which I'm not going to show you today, but their method was completing the square, which is the same method we essentially use today. Quite remarkable, some of the problems that, were, that they were able to solve uh, all that time ago. A particularly unusual and exciting tablet, this one is in the Yale Babylonian collection, it shows a square with two diagonals. And you can see the numbers 30, that refers to the side of the square, 1, 24, 51, 10. Now what that means, that means 1 plus 24 sixtieths plus 51 over 60 squared plus 10 over 60 cubed. Well, if you write that all, if you work that all out in our, de- in our decimals, you get 1.4142128. In other words, it's an extremely accurate value for the square root of, of 2. So the numbers that appear here, uh, that's the square root of 2, and that's 30 times it, which is the length of the diagonal. And, uh, but to show how good this is, if you actually square the number they get, the number that they gave, 1245110, you actually get 2 to within 5 parts in a million. Quite remarkable. Is this the best possible? With, I mean, this, like if this 11 would be a... 10 would be 11, it would be less accurate. That would be less accurate, yes. Yeah. So it's the best with these three digits. That's right, yes. It, it, and that's amazing. Let's now turn to the mathematics of China and India. Around 250 BC in India, King Asoka, or Ashoka, his edicts were written on various pillars around the kingdom, and the and numerical information appeared on these pillars. Uh, King Asoka was the first Buddhist monarch. These numbers were written in a place, place value system based on 10, using only the numbers 1, 2, 3, up to 9. And later on, 0 started to be used. Uh, and this, So this seems to be the origin, as far as we can tell, of what we now call our Hindu-Arabic number system, with the separate columns that we use for units, tens, hundreds, and so on, as I showed you at the beginning. The Chinese had a similar scheme with their counting boards, in which there are separate compartments for units, tens, hundreds, and so on. Uh, This is interesting. If you look at Chinese writing at the time, uh, they actually had a system a bit like the Egyptians, which wasn't a place-value system, because they had different different symbols for 1, 10, 100, and so on. But for their counting boards, they just had these symbols here. And basically, um, here you can see 1713 and 6036, as we write them. Notice there are only nine different symbols, with zero represented by an empty compartment. So you've got a box with different compartments, and you put in here are the units, and here are, here are the tens, and here are the hundreds, and so on. And you put in little bamboo rods um, to um, the, the appropriate number uh, to um, indicate the various numbers. So if you want 1713, for example, uh, the thing that's interesting is because if you use the, all the ones at the top, then some of these can look very much the same. So if you've got, if you've got five, five ones in successive things, then they're, they're going to look complicated. Uh, and so what they used to do is, for, alter, 
for each successive box, they would turn them round, either using the vertical symbol at the top or the horizontal one down below. So 1713, starting from the right, you've got three vertical ones for the three, you've got a horizontal one for the one, you've got the vertical seven, and then you've got the horizontal one. You notice that the same symbol is used for one in both occasions. However, if you're looking at 6036, you start on the right with a vertical T, then you have a horizontal three, a blank, uh, an empty box for zero, and you have a vertical six. So in this case, the two sixes, are in, you have the two different forms, horizontal and vertical, appearing there. That's, as I said, so the calculator can distinguish more easily between adjacent compartments. <coughs> in this context, it would have been natural to introduce a zero symbol for an empty box, although the Chinese didn't do so. The Indians did, however, and whether they were familiar with Chinese counting boards is unknown, although the Chinese uh, did visit India, and the boards were transport, tra transportable, like laptops, so it's quite possible. In any case, the Indian number system developed as a place value system based on 10, using only the numbers 1 to 9, unlike the Egyptian and Greek systems, and eventually, possibly around 400 AD or a little bit later, including also the number 0. Let's now look at the mathematical activities in China in more detail, although primary source material is very sketchy, since they wrote on bamboo, bamboo strips, and, and later on paper, neither of which survives the century as well. <coughs> There's an ancient Chinese legend about the Emperor Yu. Now, we don't know when this, this, this was. It might be, say, about 1100 BC. So the Emperor Yu was standing on the banks of the River Lo, which was a tributary of the Yellow River, when a tortoise or a turtle emerged from the river with a pattern of numbers on its back. In fact, a three-by-three three magic square. I'm not sure whether all turtles in that part of China have three-by-three three magic squares on their back, but this one apparently did. Uh, there's a drawing of, of it. A three-by-three three magic square. That's a square array of numbers that you can see there in which the sum of the numbers in each row is 15. And the sum of the numbers in each column is 15, and the sum of the numbers in the, each of the two main diagonals is also 15. So a magic square is one where the row sums, the column sums, and the two diagonals have the same sum. Over the centuries, this particular pattern of numbers acquired great religious and mystic significance and appeared in many different forms, as you can, uh, as you can see. Uh, here, for example, uh, the Chinese were very good at inventing ma magic squares. Here's a 9 by 9 magic square made from the numbers 1 to 81. So the rows and columns have the same sum, but this particular one has the property that if you divide it up, as you can see, a bit like Sudoku really, uh, if you divide it up into the 3 by 3 squares, each of those 3 by 3 squares is itself a magic square. That was, I think, around the year 1100 AD or so. It was also possibly around this time that two classic Chinese texts appeared. Uh, one was the Zhu Bei Zhuangjing, the arithmetical classic of the gnomon and the circular paths of heaven. They always have lovely titles, these, these, these works. And this included a section proof of, Pyth of the Pythagorean theorem 
or the gugu, as, as they called it. And by rearranging the pieces, you can show that the square on the hypotenuse of one of the triangles is the sum of the squares on the other two sides. Another classic Chinese problem, which uses the Pythagorean theorem, and incidentally I say Pythagorean theorem, not Pythagoras' theorem, because there's really nothing historical that links it to Pythagoras. This is the broken bamboo problem. In this problem, you've got a, you've got a bamboo, and, it's, and you break it. It's originally 10 feet high, and you break it so that its, its upper end reaches the ground three feet from the stem. And you've got to find the height of the break. Now, in modern algebraic notation, which the Chinese didn't have, we can call the answer x, and the rest of the bamboo is y, so that x plus y equals 10. That's the length of the whole bamboo. And the, by, by, by the Pythagorean theorem, x squared plus 3 squared equals, equals y squared. And if you combine these two equations, which is quite easy to do, you just write um, y equals 10 minus x and substitute, and the x squares cancel, which is nice, and that gives you, that gives, gives you the answer. Um, this sort of problem was looked at about I, I think we're talking about 250 BC that, that, that sort of time that, that's when this, this problem was around but it was around for many many centuries a lot of, the, a lot of these problems did survive uh, for, for, many, for many many years and, and things like the Gugu might, might, would probably have been started up a lot earlier than that as well so some of you have met, may have met the Chinese remainder theorem so-called because it apparently originated in China around, this is around 250 AD, when Sun Zi, in his modestly entitled Sun Zi Zhuangjing, Master Sun's Mathematical Manual, asked the following question. We have an unknown number of things. If we count them by two, by threes, there are two left over. If we count them by fives, there are three left over. If we count them by sevens, there are two left over. How many things are there? Um, some of you, many of you will have seen Marcus de Sotoy's television programmes, The Story of Maths, which came out in 2008 and were repeatedly on television and uh, in those programmes. And they're all on YouTube, so you can watch any of them. And I would strongly encourage you. They're four one-hour programmes on the history of mathematics. And the first one has the Egyptian and Mesopotamian stuff and, and Greek material. The second one has China and India and then into Europe and so on. And in, in the second one, he's in this Chinese market with this woman who is selling eggs. I don't know what she thought about it, but he started rearranging the eggs in, such a, in, rows, of, in, in rows of three and found there were two left over and then rows of five and there were three left over and so on. And um, so uh, this is the problem. How many were there? The answer that Sun Zi gave was 23. Uh, which certainly satisfies all of these results. If you count by threes, it's 21 plus 2, and so on. But Sunzi also provided a full explanation of how to solve this problem and any other of the same type. And uh, so the smallest answer is 23, and Sunzi also indicated what the next answer was. To get the next answer, you just add 3 times 5 times 7, which is 105, and that gives you the answer. Now, the bamboo problem that we were talking about earlier appeared in the other great early text, the, um, the, the Zhu Zhang Xuan Shu. And I apologize, 
uh, to any Chinese people here about my pronunciation, because I don't really know how to pronounce them. Um, it's usually called the Nine Chapters on the Mathematical Art or something like that. This remarkable work contains 246 questions with answers, uh, but with no working shown. And it may have been used as a textbook. It deals with both practical and theoretical matters. For example, there are problems from agriculture, business, surveying and engineering, and and more theoretical things, discussions of the areas and volumes of geometrical shapes, the calculation of square roots and cube roots, the study of right-angled triangles, and the solution of simultaneous equations. And the last topic in particular is remarkable, and I'd like to show you an example which is not as complicated as as it looks. There are three grades of paddy or or grain. Top grade, medium and low grade. And the first sentence says, if you take three bundles of top grade, two bundles of medium and one bundle of low grade, that yields 39 measures. Two of top, three of medium and one of low leads for 34 measures. And one of top, two of medium and three of low yield 26 measures. How many of each type are there? Now, these days, we would write down those three simultaneous equations uh, that you can see there, and we'd solve them uh, step by step uh, using standard methods. Interestingly, uh, the Chinese did exactly the same way. They wrote down on the right. They actually sort of would write them vertically rather than horizontally, um, but basically um, it's the same as we would do. And then they, then they started manipulating them using a systematic method. And the amazing thing is that the method we use, we use now to solve systems equations like this, which is often called Gaussian elimination, after the mathematician Gauss from around the early 1800s. Um, and it gives the answer that we can see here. But that's exactly the same method, apart from being turned around, that the Chinese did. Their method is exactly the same as the one that Gauss gave some 2,000 years later, but Gauss got the, got the credit. And this isn't the only time that, that the Chinese got there before uh, anyone else or most people. For example, the Chinese, some of you will know Pascal's triangle uh, for binomial coefficients. Well, the Chinese certainly had a Pascal triangle uh, 450 years before Pascal, although before that there were Arabic ones and uh, Indian ones as well. The final Chinese topic I'd like to look at is the evaluation of pi, which is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. Um, Around AD 100, Zhang Hong, um, inventor of the seismograph for measuring earthquakes, suggested the value square root of 10 um, for the answer. Now, the square root of 10 is about 3.16, pi is 3.14. It was really quite a a good approximation and one that was widely used not only in China but in India and various other places as well. So it's quite a good approximation. Correct value is about 3.14159. Now, Archimedes in, in, in Greece had actually approximated the value of pi by taking a circle... And to calculate its circumference, he put inside a hexagon. And he put a, a hexagon around the outside as well. He calculated the perimeters of the inside hexagon and the outside hexagon, and then the, uh, the circumference of the circle, of course, would lie between them, and found out that it lay between 3 and about 3.464, I think. Not very good. He then 
double the number of sides. Instead of the hexagon, he took a dodecagon with 12 sides and did the same thing and then doubled it to 24, 48, 96 and uh, got the value. Well, he, he, Archimedes found that the value lay between 22 over 7, which is the one that we all know, uh, a little le- less than that and a little more than 3 and 10 71sts. So it lies between 3 and 10 71sts and 3 and 10 70ths, uh, which in, in our decimal notation gives you 3.14. Um, now, Liu Huei did a similar thing. He was actually concerned with areas, pi r squared rather than the 2 pi r type formula. And he, as you can see, he surrounded uh, the circle where he put the polygons inside and uh, he doubled the number of sides from 96 to 192, 384, and so on, all the way up to 3,072 sides. He didn't draw it, of course, but uh, he, did the, he did the calculations. And he got that value, 3.14159. But the really remarkable uh, result uh, was uh, of Zhu Zhongzhi and his son around AD 500, who continued doubling up to 24,576 sides, did the calculations, and got a value of pi, which in our decimal notation is correct to six decimal places. And he also had the approximation, we know 22 over 7, he also found 355 over 113, which does give pi to six decimal places, uh, and that particular approximation wasn't discovered in Europe for another thousand years. We'll now return briefly to Indian mathematics, concentrating on just two mathematicians, Aryabhata and Brahmagupta. Aryabhata was about AD 500, as you can see, and he's not in a snowstorm, he's just admiring the stars in in the sky. (coughs) One of Aryabhata's main contributions was to sum arithmetic progressions, uh, such as 6 plus 9 plus 12 plus 15 plus 18 plus 21. Arithmetic progressions means you go up by the same amount each time. Here are three. And how do you add these up? Well, he gave... The answer in two forms. The first one was, was, it was in, in words. It's quite easy. You just take the desired, the, the desired number of terms, minus one, half, multiply by the common difference between the terms, plus the first term is the middle term. This multiplied by the number of terms desired is the sum of the desired number of terms. So that's how to do that. Um, a slightly easier formulation is you take the sum of the first and last terms um, and then multiply that by half the number of terms. So you take 6 plus 21, that's 27, Half the number of terms is 3, and if you uh, multiply those, you get 81, which is the correct answer. And you also get the correct answer from here, actually, the middle term. Uh, you take the desired number of terms, that's 6 minus 1, 5, half that, 5 halves, multiplied by 3 gives you the middle term, which is, is interpreted as 13 and a half, and then you multiply that by 6, and that gives you 81 as before. Um, we use these formulae here, and this first description gives you that exactly and the second one gives you that. So it's, it's what students will use now. Uh, but it's, it's, although that's rather indigestible, this actually does give you a general rule for summing these arithmetic progressions. <coughs> the other person is Brahm Gupta, who is a bit later, a hundred years later, and he gave rules for calculating with zero, which he also called cipher or naught. Uh, and also pos- uh, not only zero, uh, but also negative numbers as well. Now, zero had two purposes. It was used as a placeholder that you used for distinguishing between, say, 35 and 305. 
the Egyptians would have actually had a, left a gap in the sand uh, or they'd put in a sort of pebble or something to indicate that there's a zero there. Uh, that re- represented zero. <clears throat> but it's also a number that you calculate with. And how do you calculate it? Brahma Gupta gave you the, the rules. So if you take cipher and negative, in other words, if you add zero to a negative number, you get a negative number. Uh, positive uh, plus zero is a positive number. Uh, two, zero plus zero is zero. Similar things for negative. If you take ne- a negative number from zero, you get a positive number and the other way around. Then you get the pro- product of cipher and positive. That's zero times the positive number or zero times the negative number is, 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 is naught is zero. Zero times zero is zero. And so these are instructions for how to deal with this. The interesting thing is the last one. Um, cipher divided by cipher is naught. Well, zero over zero uh, can actually take any value you like. Uh, it's a meaningless expression. Uh, and it was actually some centuries before mathematicians really learned how to deal with dividing by zero. But it's interesting that that statement does actually appear in Brahmagupta's writings around 600. One more Indian topic, and then we'll go on to the, the Mayans. <coughs> so Brahmagupta and a later mathematician called Bhaskara also worked extensively on a particular equation now known wrongly uh, as Pell's equation. Pell was a, a mathematician around 1700, and Euler called this Pell's equation when it wasn't. They asked questions of the form, um, well, tell me, O oh mathematician, I love the way they phrase this, what is that square which multiplied by 8 becomes together with unity a square? In our algebraic notation, if, if it's x, 8x squared plus 1, is, is a perfect square. Well, it's easy to find some solutions by inspection. Uh, if you take x to, x to be 1, then you get 8 plus 1 is, is 9, which is 3 squared. Or if you take x to be 6, then you get 8 times 48, which is 288, plus 1, which is 299, which is 17 squared. Whereas other numbers, if you take x to be 2, you get um, 33, which is not a square. So you've got to look for solutions. Uh, so that's one particular example. More generally, you can take any number here, other than a, a square, and, um, and see if you can find some, some solutions. And the hardest ones were 67, x squared plus 1 equals y squared, and 61. And it's quite remarkable that, I think it was probably Bhaskara around the 1100s, uh, looked at this and he managed to come out with this solution. This is the smallest solution how on earth did he get 5,967 for X and that for Y? Uh, it must have taken... Uh, well, he must have had some method, but we don't know what it was. And it's really quite remarkable. Um, one thing I would like to point out is, in fact, um, they also described a method for finding new solutions from old ones. And this is rather pretty. And those mathematicians among you might like to try and explain why it works. So supposing... Let's come back to this one. Suppose you've got X is 1 and Y is, equal, is 3. So you've got 1, 3. And because you haven't got any other solutions, you put 1, 3 again. You then say 1 times 3 is 3. It's cross, multiplication. 1 times 3 is 3. Add 3 and 3, you get 6. That's another solution. Now you've got two solutions. You've got 1, 3, you've got 6, 17. So you look at 1 times 17 is 17. 6 times 3 is 18. Add them together, 35. And if you take 8 times 35 squared plus 1, then you get 99 squared. And you can, you can deduce 
as far as you want, you can, you can, you can find infinitely many solutions of, of this. Before leaving uh, India, I'd just like to mention a later development. The wonderful observatories known as Jantar Mantar in Delhi and in Jaipur. And these contain massive astro- astronomical instruments that were used for measuring the heavens to an amazing degree of accuracy. Well, we come now to our final culture, the Mayans of Central America. There's been a Mayan culture for many, many thousands of years, indeed it still exists, but the heyday of their mathematical activities was focused around the period from about 300 to 900 AD. The Mayans were situated over a large area centred around Guatemala and present-day Belize, and extending from the Yucatan Peninsula of of Mexico in the north to Honduras in the south. And we have primary sources in the form of some stone columns called stelae and a handful of codices. Regrettably, most of the the codices were destroyed by the Spanish conquerors who arrived in this area after the year 1500. But the best-known codex is the 12th century codex, Dresden Codex, so-called because it now resides in Dresden in Germany. I have seen it. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And there are a couple of other surviving codices, such as the Madrid Codex. This this is actually the Madrid one here. It was drawn on a 22-foot length of paper made of tree bark and folded uh, and was intended to, to guide Mayan priests in ritual ceremonies involving such pursuits as hunting, planting and rainmaking. Rainmaking. And the things to concentrate on here are the symbols consisting of lines with dots over them. These are the Mayan numerals. Uh, so notice, notice these ones in particular. We're going to look at this one in a minute. Here you can see the numerals more clearly. The Mayans essentially used a dot representing one and a line representing five. And this table gives the numbers up to 19 obtained by combining them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5 and 1, 5 and 2, and so on. You can also see they had a special symbol uh, for zero, looking rather like an I. The The Mayans essentially used a number system based on 20, and so got larger and larger numbers by combining these ones. For example, the symbol at the top, which we saw on the previous slide, has 13 below 12, and that means 13 ones combined with 12 twenties, which is our 253. One rather jolly feature of the Mayan numerals is that there's an alternative form for each number, the head form, which you can see in the middle. These can vary a bit, but zero always have, has clasped hands across the lower part of the face, while three has a banded headdress. And these head forms appear on various columns, such as the one on the right, um, which can be interpreted to give the date when it was constructed, as, as we'll see. So you can see that each of these head forms there, these heads, represents one of these numbers, which represents one of these numbers. And by combining them, you get these rather nice patterns. Now, the Mayans had a fixation on the calendar... And they had essentially two different kinds which they combined in order to keep track of the passage of time. The first was a ritual calendar of 260 days, known as the Tzolkin, consisting of 13 months of 20 days. 
And we can think of it as two circular wheels that you can see here, with the 13 months on the top one and the 20 days on the bottom one. And each day had a number and a name, such as one emix. You can see one is linking up with emix. Now, the next number is not two emix. What you do is you rotate them, and then one goes next to emix, and two goes next to ik, and then three akbal, four, and so on. And so they, they, that's how, so they rotate like that. Uh, and, uh, and this gives them all their numbers. Uh, with, uh, 200, with uh, 260 in total. The other calendar has 18 months of 20 days, plus an extra five aus- inauspicious or evil days to make up the usual 365, and heaven help you if anything goes wrong on any of those five days. And these two calendars operated independently, but were also combined to give a long count, or calendar round, in which the number of days... Uh, was the least common multiple of 260 and 365, which you've immediately worked out as 18,980, or 52 calendar years. So that was another unit of time. The long count was 52 calendar years. For example, the day of four, Ahu, and eight, Kumku, won't come around again for 52 years. And these periods of 52 years were then packaged up into even longer time periods, uh, which were due to actually, actually which were all come, due to come to an end in December 2012, when the world would end. But it didn't, which is why I'm giving this lecture. <laughs> I mentioned that the Mayans based their number system on 20, which is almost correct. But since their number system was used mainly for keeping track of the calendar, they made a slight modification to take account of the number of days in the year. So they introduced an 18 into their 20-based system to give 360, which more closely approximated the number of days in the calendar year than 400 would have done. So their units were based on the following scheme. One kin was one day, 20 kins, or one uinil, um, I don't know how to pronounce these, was 20 days, 18 uinils is one tun, is 360 days, 20 tons, one katun, that should be 72 7,200 days there, and then 20 cartoons, one back tune is 144,000 days. They had no problems with calculating with such large numbers. And here on the right is the largest number ever found on a codex. Starting on the bottom, we have 1, 1, 15, 20s, 13, 360s, 14, 7,200s, and so on. And doing the calculations, as shown on the right, and adding the results gives the grand total of 12,489,781 days, or over 34,000 years. So I'd like to conclude uh, with a limestone calendar stone that features a particular date, possibly an important festival, or possibly just the date that the stone was constructed. The monkey on the second picture on the right, you see the monkey... uh, That represents day, and the god's head above its hand and representing the sky represents six, while the head below it means ten. So this picture apparently represents 16 days. And if we similarly interpret all the pictures here, add them all up, and then add the result to the official Mayan starting date of 3114 BC, we obtain, what do we obtain? The exact date of the stone, 11th of February in the year 526 AD which is quite remarkable and a nice thing to end with. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, plenty of time for questions. Gentlemen. Yes. Can you wait for the microphone? Thank you very much. What I put uh, was uh, just um, something that we did for this concept of zero. If I understand, that came first from Indian mathematics. We didn't have Roman numerals. And then it was handed over to the Arabs who gave it to Europe. Um, I, can you just say if I'm correct and elaborate on that? Yes, that's right. The, um, we don't really know when zero first came, but it was certainly India, probably around the year 400 AD. If you watch the Marcus de Sotoy programs, you'll see that he goes into a cave in Gwalior, which has the symbol marked down. Uh, but that was about 700 AD, 700 or 800 AD, and it's now, and that was believed to be the earliest, actually one that printed, actually there are now known to be earlier ones than that. But somewhere in that period, 400 to 800 um, AD, the, the zero symbol started to, to appear. It was a circular symbol, um, meaning cipher uh, and, uh, uh, or zero. It corresponded to sort of making a hole, a hole in the sand, and, and, and so on, the word cifra. That's what, basically what it means, I think. So that was the period that, that zero came. And then, and then um, when the Islamic mathematics started uh, with the new religion, um, Islamic religion coming in around the year 750 or so, um, Baghdad was on the trade routes from Europe and from the Greek world, if you like, or, or well, the Greek world didn't exist then, but, but the Greek and Roman culture went along the trade routes. The trade routes didn't only deal with, with silks and spices, but it dealt with, with manuscripts and, and books and so on. And all the, they come, came from the Greek and Roman culture came from the, from the, the West, and the Indian culture came from, from the East. And, uh, and in um, Baghdad, they, they had this group of people called the House of Wisdom, uh, where they actually sort of took all these, these things, they developed them, they translated them into, into Arabic and Persian and other languages and they developed them and made them their own and then eventually the Islamic world went across northern Africa up into, into Europe, into southern Spain and Italy and everything got translated into Latin which, which then uh, became uh, known, known in Europe. So there are all these different things going on but, but it, it was the, the Ashoka columns were the first numbers if you like uh, uh, of the Hindu, Hindu numerals, then the zero came in, and then the Islamic scholars took it over um, and, and developed it. So that's why we call them the Hindu Arabic numerals. Yes. Uh, just behind you, yes. Yes. There's a, the microphone is coming. Yes, go ahead, please. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Did any of these cultures have lotteries? And was there mathematics associated with that? That's a very good... I've never heard that question before. Or it just occurred to me. I haven't the least idea. Uh, Norman, do, do you know the answer? Yes, they did. They did? OK, Norman, would like to answer the question? <laughs> Norman and I are teaching this history of maths course uh, together, and he, and he knows everything, so... He also <laughs> um, so, so certainly in Greek and Roman times, there were lotteries... And I think there is evidence from the earlier civilizations as well, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Throwing dice was the, or a version of the dice, was the main um, uh, pastime. And there are an awful lot of references to that in both Greek and Roman literature. 
How about the non-Western um, cultures? <laughs> that is getting into the question of um, the attitude of the people to predestination, the belief in the gods um, having ordained everything and so forth. And I'm afraid I'm not an expert. <laughs> but I should say that Norman has a wonderful book coming out shortly called Quite Right, which is about the mathematics of measurement and of money, and that will be coming out in the next month or two. Uh, yes. <laughs> What's Norman's other name? Norman Biggs. Well, we'll be on our Twitter. We'll be online on our Twitter feed. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I saw Bernard. So the um, unit fractions of the Egyptians are not as weird as they say, uh, seem. So I, I, I like to introduce them to uh, say, if you have five pieces of bread and want to distribute among seven people, well, cut them in half first. Then you have ten pieces, and then you have three remaining that you cut then into thirds. And so on. Is that um, also clear that this is the origin of this? Yes, I'm, I'm sure that's, that, that's the case. Uh, we tend to think, well, we do our fractions our way, and we, we tend to think that aren't they strange doing it, doing it their way? And they would think exactly the same about what we do. As you say, they would sort of cut things up into, in, into sixths, if you like, and then they cut the sixths up into smaller ones and so on. And that's illustrated on the first of Marcus Tussauds' programmes. He, he actually does that, dividing up cake or something like in that way and then, and then combining them together so for example if you combine a third and a sixth you'll get a half and, and so on so, yes that's right so it's very easy for us to think how primitive they were what a strange way they did of doing things but it's very important to try and look at things from their point of view in the culture of the time rather than with, with, with our hindsight so there's a one there's a lady there in the back please Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was wondering, to what extent do you think that if some of these civilizations wouldn't have been uh, destroyed, there would have been some sort of convergence into some very sophisticated mathematics? Um, also, to what extent would it be similar to our mathematics currently? Thank you. Um, I, I'm not really quite sure how to answer that. I mean, a lot of things were destroyed, of course. I mean... Uh, uh, a lot of our primary sources have been destroyed. All the, not only have they disappeared, but uh, um, the Greek culture, of course, the various libraries, were, 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 you know, with earthquakes and fires and things, uh, they all disappeared. Um, I don't think that really answers your question. I'm, I'm not really quite sure how to answer your question, I'm afraid. I think the, the question, Robin, as I understood it, is what, suppose, if the Mayans or kind of would have kept on developing, would their mathematics be converging to what we think is now modern mathematics. Oh, so would it be merged to kind of... Uh, I think that, that's... I understand. Oh, sorry, okay. I, I, it, um, it, I mean, I had a similar kind of question, kind of what, what would be a dominant one if, if they all would have been kind? Um, I don't think there's any way that we can, we can, we can know. Uh, I mean, a lot of... Uh, in some sense, you know, most of our mathematics as we know it now uh, has its origins in the Greeks. Uh, bec uh, certainly... Um, uh, the whole idea of Greek mathematics, um, the, the fundamental idea there is the idea of proof and of logical deduction uh, and, and so on. Uh, where, uh, so the Greeks developed the idea of proof and, and uh, you prove things by 
step by step, from, from you've got a set of axioms and you prove some simple results and the more complicated ones, you get this huge hierarchy of results with everything depending on everything below. Uh, and, that, that, and basically it was a Greek system that, that, that led uh, uh, to what happened then in the Islamic world. Of course, when they got there, that was developed and then came into Europe and, and so on. Um, I, don't think, I don't know how much... Certainly if the Chinese, um, all their discoveries, um, uh, if they had merged with, with the Greeks and so on, uh, then of course uh, a lot more would have, would have been done uh, because, as I say, you know, the Chinese discovered things like solving simultaneous equations and so on. So all these different things, had, they had different things, things to offer. And, uh, you know, and you know, even things like the Hindu-Arabic numerals, the way that they developed by, by the sharing of Indian ideas with, with, with Islamic ideas and, and so on. But we really don't know very much about how much they did combine. I mean, how much did Indians and Chinese mathematicians know about each other? And how much did the Greeks know about Mesopotamian and Egyptian mathematics? And, uh, you know, the various things have been written, but there's an awful lot that's not, not really known. You know, where did the Greeks get their idea of proof from? Uh, and uh, it's said that Pythagoras, I think, um, had been to Egypt or something, but you know, we don't really know, and we don't know what, what he would have picked up from there. Another one at the back. The one at the back. Yeah, the one a little bit too... Yeah, that one was for... One back. Yes, and then we go to the second. Ah, yes, I'm sorry. I'm reminded just of an anecdote about Gauss that we're told that he was told by his math teacher when he was quite young to add all the numbers from 1 to 500 and then used the the formula for arithmetic progressions um, and amazed his math teacher by accurately calculating all the numbers in less than an hour. And you mentioned that in 500 AD there was already an idea of how to solve arithmetic or the or, um, the sum of arithmetic progressions. So, how possible is it that Gauss, um, of course, he was a genius, but how possible is it that he had perhaps already heard of it? Um, was there any? Is there any evidence of that having been? Well, over? A, there's no foundation for the story. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, even if, if they were, it was a 100, not 500. And I'm sure the way he would have done it, if he did, uh, was to say 1 and 100 is 101, 2 and 99 is 101. Three, so you've got these sort of 50, 101s, uh, which could be 50-50 straight away. So, so you, don't need to, you don't need a formula. As I say, I'm sure he just did it that sort of way, uh, which would have come quite naturally to someone clever like him. But he probably didn't do it anyway. <laughs> Okay, question in the back. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I have kind of a follow-up question to the lady in front of me who asked um, the question. I was wondering, I don't know if you know, if there are any instances where um, Western mathematics kind of lacks and doesn't provide us with solutions and we kind of have to resort to non-Western methods of solving an, a problem? Um... Not well. I mean, as I say, are you talking about now or, or well now? I mean, mathematics is completely worldwide, and and uh, uh, and, and everyone collaborates with everyone. If if, I, if if I were writing a paper on something, and I found that someone in China or in Mexico or something like that were doing the same thing, we would actually collaborate. So so there's there's complete international communication. Sorry. 
Well, I think all, all methods are pretty, pretty international now. I mean, I don't think there are national, um, there are national ways of doing mathematics very much anymore. I mean, there have obviously been uh, some countries which concentrate on certain areas. I mean, the, the, the Poles concentrated a bit on a lot on topology and analysis. The Hungarians did a lot on number theory and combinatorics and so on. Uh, but so there are these national. In, in, uh, specialisations, if you like, but everything is com- is, is completely wo- completely worldwide. Well, what is interesting is is that, uh, of course, as I said, you know, the Chinese had had uh, Pascal's triangle uh, 450 years before Pascal, and Islamic mathematicians had it had it even earlier. So, if if there had been a lot more collaboration then, then of course a lot of these things would have developed uh, a lot earlier, or wouldn't have been rediscovered in the West. Uh, who, as I say, didn't know what, what had already happened in non-Western countries. Okay, question here in the front. Any? And then there's one up there after that. Sorry, um, Thanks for, uh, for the talk. Uh, do we know what was the profile of a mathematician in these civilizations? Were they the religious people? Were they the bankers, the traders? And what was their social status? Um, we know really rather little about uh, an awful lot of them. As I say, the, the people that would have um, read the Egyptian ones of scribes, uh, we, we, we know that they were the, they were the educated people and, and they were being taught by these um, papyruses and these clay tablets and so on, uh, learnt, learnt to, to, to write so that, so that they, they, could, they could write for, uh, you know, for their... Um, they, they were the scholars. Um, uh, we don't know very much about individual people um, the scribe that wrote the Rhine Papyrus um, was called Armies. We know that because he actually signed it. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but by and large, we don't know about, about individuals, except, as I say, that certain people that did, um, did their sign their names. I mean, we saw um, Master Sun's manual, the Chinese one, where he did the Chinese remainder theorem. So, so there we actually know, know a bit about him. But I don't think we know much about him about his life and, and everything like this. There was a question at the back first, kind of, and then we go. So if, if we assume that at least two of these systems of mathematics really did emerge isolated without any influence, what extent do you think they're actually innate? What aspects of mathematics would be innate? Just basic arithmetics or also forms of geometry and algebra and calculus? So how, I guess, do you distinguish between what aspects are through culture and what aspects would actually be innate if they're really emerging, isolated? Well, I mean, some of these are actually to, to fulfill a need. In Egypt, of course, they, uh, they needed to, uh, to find the areas of fields and they needed to uh, uh, work out payment of money uh, and... Uh, they, they paid their, their slaves in, in bread and beer and everything, so they needed to do calculations which, which involved things like that. So some of them were sort of, uh, there's a question about irrigation of the land, the, the Nile flooded every year, and so this brought in all sorts of mathematical problems about, um, about food and about money and all sorts of things. So a lot of it was uh, a desire to, um, to deal with practical problems. Whereas some of them, of, of, of course, were, 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 were very impractical. You know, the Greek idea of proof uh, uh, was not to solve practical problems as such. Um, but Plato, for example, when he, he wrote The Republic, uh, he actually 
in Plato's Academy, and incidentally Academy, the word Academy comes because the Academy is the name of a suburb of Athens, and that, which is where it was placed. So in 387, when Plato's Academy was started, he, he had a strong emphasis on, on the four mathematical arts of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, the so-called quadrivium, because he felt these were the important things for the ruler of the state. Greek, Greece had a whole lot of city-states, and he felt that the rulers of these states needed to know mathematics, just like our current political leaders, they're all excellent at mathematics. Uh, or if they were, of course, the world would be in a so much better, better place. And, and, and Plato had the right idea. He felt that, that if, they, if they knew the, the, the mathematical quadrivium, if you like, uh, that, 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 that would in, enhance the way they, they ruled the state. So, so a lot of these things are, are based very much on... Uh, and there are long discussions in Plato about what is the use of mathematics, what's the use of geometry, and so on. So, um, a lot... Mind you, some of this is quite controversial. I mean, the, the Egyptian Rhine papyrus, for a long time some people thought they were practical problems, because if you find in the Rhine papyrus, you find, find the volume of a, of a cylindrical granary. Or a, a, you've got a circular... Uh, granary of a certain height, what's its volume? That looks like a practical problem. And you're, so, you're sharing out loaves of bread among 13 people so that three of them get double rations and the rest get, get single rations. How much does each one get? Those sound practical problems, but the answers they had with all this long string of, of unit fractions, now that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been, been practical. So some of these problems... We don't really know, but we believe they were used for educational purposes, but they were set in a practical context to make them look more relevant, just like today's textbooks where you have, have things set in a so-called practical setting uh, to make them seem more relevant. Um, but I won't get into that. <laughs> OK. Yes. Um, just a quick question. Do you know the particular use of the 12 million days in the Mayan... Um, like the largest Mayan number you found, what it was used for? Um, not really, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that they use, knew what it was used for, but they just love calculating these things. I mean, obviously, as I say, they had these, these long... They, they did have this, this long view. Uh, if, if it started in 3114 BC, uh, they actually certainly calculated as far as 2012, so that was their time scale that they, they, they based on. They didn't think anything went beyond there. It might have been about the stars, because they were very keen on stars. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yes, that's a very good point. In fact, they used to have, make children, small children, they used to put stones in front in their foreheads, so they were squinting, oh. so that when they could look at the stars, they would have a clearer view. Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Yes. Okay. Right. We had a question. Sorry, there was a lady. There. We, all get, we all get pretty starry-eyed when we looked at those Mayan numerals. <laughs> that one there in the middle. I think that wasn't the next one. That was Thank you for the talk. Um, do we know of any civilizations that had a counting system that wasn't of the base one to nine or ninth base? Well, they're all based on, on. Well, I mean, in some sense, they all had one to nine in there. You know, the Mesopotamians used 60, and the, um, uh, uh, a lot of North American Indians used different scales. Uh, they used scales certainly on five. They're all based essentially on fives and tens and things. Some of them were based on 20, as we saw. Some were based on 10. Uh, I mean, even 20 come, still exists 
In English, well, in the olden days, you used to say three score years and ten. The French still have quatre vingts for 80. They have four twenties. So there's, there's still a bit of 20 surviving uh, in, in, in some of these. Um, but I, I don't know of any um, particular ones where they had weird numbers. Although, as I say, some of the North American Indian tribes, I think they, they, they use some quite unusual ones. Um, I know an article, I, I must reread it sometime, so, so, but that's, uh, so that there might be some, but as I say, most people tended to use things based on fingers and toes. Okay, I saw a hand in the far corner. Fire like. Yeah, you were mentioning about the almost the necessity, invention is the mother of necessity with, in terms of developing mathematical process um, to count grain on areas of land. Um, thinking of Tim Berners-Lee and his sort of invention with the internet uh, at CERN in order to communicate quicker with, with fellow scientists... Do you have any personal knowledge or insight into that sort of area of discovery which seems to be so profound and so recent in terms of um, you know, the Western industrial society in, in, in relation to his um, love of work, working and developing codes? And do, do you know any of the maths behind that at all? Well, um I think that's really a bit out of today's topic. I'm, I can't, not really quite sure what, what to answer that. Can you? Uh, <laughs> I don't really think I, I, I really quite latched onto that question. So, one one thing which I, I would like to say, incidentally, about uh, about um, things is that you know the Greeks, as I said, they were interested in proof, and they were concerned with whether things were true or not. Uh, they certainly weren't concerned with practical. Um, Uses, for example, in Euclid's Elements, you'll find a proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers, and they, the Greeks were very interested in prime numbers, um, and uh, uh, they had perfect numbers where, if you add all factors, you get the original number. Six has factors one, two, and three, which add up to six. Twenty-eight has one, two, four, seven, and fourteen, which add up up to twenty-eight, uh, and next one to four hundred ninety-six and eight one two eight, and then there isn't another one till my favourite number, 33,550,336, uh, where its factors add up to that number. Well, this, there's nothing practical about that. But they did... But this, so this is the art side of mathematics, if you like. Um, mathematics is fun. Mathematics you do because you're, inter- you're, you're interested. Prime numbers. There would be prime numbers in any culture whatsoever, you know, on, on Mars, if, if there are any characters there, they, the basic idea of a prime number will still exist, uh, whatever number systems you have. Um, and, um, and, and prime numbers really uh, were done for the fun of it. You know, what are their properties? Um, some questions you can ask are so easy to ask, but we don't know the answer. Can every even number be written as the sum of two primes? Goldbach's conjecture. Well, it's easy to, to, to check, isn't it, uh, that, that 8 is 5 plus 3 and 10 is 5 plus 5 and so on. And you can check up to 4,000 million. But that might just be coincidence. And uh, in mathematics, unlike science, proof, so truth, it, it has to be absolute. Proof has to be absolute. It has to work in every case. 
I, I mean, I, I'm not getting at en- engineers when I say when they check primes, they, they say, well, three is prime and five is prime and seven is prime and nine is experimental error and 11 is prime <laughs> and 13 is prime. I'm not getting at it. But, but, um, but there cannot be any exceptions, okay? So prime numbers are basically, for 2,000 years, we're done out of the interest. No, no practical applications at all. Now, of course, there's cryptography. And there's your, your credit card, the nation's defence. They all depend on number theory, number theory of Fermat, a result of Fermat. Um, the, the security of everything in the world depends on some quite simple results in number theory. Uh, which, of course, no, no knowledge of these was had by the Greeks or Fermat or even more modern number theorists like Hardy, who, 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 did, who did wonderful things in prime number theory, uh, but he was always seemed to be quite proud that it had no applications. Or he certainly uh, he didn't know of any and he didn't care whether it had any or not. Now, of course, number theory is absolutely crucial uh, in our everyday life. Yes, that's okay, one, one question. Uh, thank you very much. You said that the uh, Mesopotamians, they used mainly clay and the Egyptians papyrus or, or paper or whatever and that the paper didn't survive. Papyrus is a sort of reed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, reed seems to be much more practical in terms of distributing it and using it on an everyday basis and sort of putting something into clay. I mean, there's very little I would want to put into clay of what I come up with. So do we know why one group did this and the other that? Is it because they only had clay or is it because... Well, they it depends were... on what you have. I mean, the Egyptians had a lot of, because of the, of the Nile, they had a lot of reeds and they found that they could write on that quite, quite well. You saw some examples, uh, some bits of the Rhine papyrus here and, and they found that was a good way of, of, of writing things and, 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 you know, for everyday life that would have been fine. We write on paper. But the paper we write on, I mean, most of those pieces of paper are not going to be around hundreds of years from now. Uh, and so paper doesn't survive. And the thing about clay is they, had, you know, they, they used a lot of clay. And, and with a stylus, you could actually write. And, you know, they really, as I say, they managed to write very detailed stuff on these. And they baked them in the sun, so they were always there. Uh, and, uh, as I say, those have survived the centuries uh, in a way that, that reeds don't. So I think it was, it, was, it was the material that they had available. And that's what they used. Uh, if the Mesopotamians had had papyrus, they might have used it. Fortunately, they didn't. But the Greeks, of course, used papyrus, which is why we have virtually no Greek primary sources. Okay, I really, I, th- I see a hand here, a hand there. I think we, we should call it the, the final two questions. <coughs> this one first was already there, and then the gentleman there. Hi. I was just wondering um, if the... Uh, multiple mathematical principles were discovered in these traditions, why are they not properly credited sort of today within Western tradition? Credited to... to, As in the things like Pythagoras' theorem being discovered much earlier. Well, we don't know who discovered it. Um, It was certainly... And the Pythagorean theorem uh, was certainly known... The result was about right-angled triangles was certainly known to the Mesopotamians a thousand years earlier. Uh, we don't even know whether Pythagoras existed. He probably did. But we certainly know that he had a school. And, and, and the belief is that, for that particular example, that it was a Pythagorean school, and the, the result had been known for hundreds of years. 
but it was a Pythagorean school that, that probably came up with the first proof. Uh, the proof given in Euclid is quite complicated. It might have had a dissection proof, a bit like the Chinese ones, for example. Um, but, uh, I mean, we, Pascal's triangle, we call Pascal's triangle because Pascal actually wrote quite extensively about it and there are different approaches to Pascal's triangle. Um, uh, you can regard it as... Well, you can regard it in three different ways, essentially. And Pascal pulled them all together and wrote about them and, and tied them together. But in fact, uh, there's a Chinese one, and there was, um, and the earliest Pascal triangle I know was Al Karaji in 1007, which is an Arabic one, and I think there are Indian ones as well. And there's certainly quite a lot of European ones, Cardano and Tatalia, who solved cubic equations, for example. They they had, they all had P- Pascal triangles, uh, and it's just chance, I suppose, that, it, that it, it's called after Pascal, even though other people had it earlier. Uh, um, did, didn't someone say that there's a, there's a rule that everything is named after the wrong person and the, and the person who's credited with that rule that was the wrong person too <laughs> and, uh, yes, uh, yes so, so I mean a lot of things we do know who, who, who came up with them but in many cases you know, there, are, there are results the Bernoulli numbers are called after Bernoulli because he, he published them but they were known 100 years earlier by someone called Fellharber. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of these different things. And, and later on, we found that someone else has discovered them first. Galileo is often given credit for, for being the first to use the, the telescope, but Harriet, Thomas Harriet, got there uh, you know, a few months earlier. But once the idea was established that this person did it, that tends to stick. And, and even if we found that someone earlier did it, uh, it's very difficult to try and change things at that stage. Okay, there was one, yep, that one question there. <coughs> Thank you. Um, when do we see the emergence of mathematical objects other than numbers? Sorry, when do we? Uh, when do we see the emergence of mathematical objects other than numbers? From the very beginning. Um, mathemati- These days, people talk about maths at school, learning tables, because uh, ev- everyone tends to forget it's to regard mathematics meaning numeracy or arithmetic but geometry started just as early algebra was much later algebra didn't start until um, until the Islamic mathematicians in fact Al-Khwarizmi Al-Khwarizmi wrote um, a book on arithmetic and the word algorithm is named after Al-Khwarizmi although my American friends tell me that the word algorithm comes from Al Gore but there we are, I don't believe <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but, uh, but he also wrote a book with one of the words in the title was algebra. So that's an area of mathematics which came later. But, but from the very beginning, you had arithmetic, because, of course, you had to, you had to deal with everyday accounts, like money and everything like this. Um, and you'll learn about that if you read Norman's book when it comes out. But just as much, they had to measure fields. And so geometry, the, the mathematics of space, has got just as an, old, an older as older history and of course as you were saying there's astronomy as well there's, there's, the, the, there's not only the world around us but there's the world above us so ideas of space and ideas of number both developed from very earliest times okay well thank you very much uh, Robin for a very